Take a network break. No virtual donuts this week as Drew hasn't returned from the virtual donutaria. We aren't sure what's happened, but we have hired a donut barista to locate the delivery and get it here forthwith. Uh, not too worried about Drew because uh, pretty sure he'll be back next week because he's on leave. So uh, I am joined by a new co-host this week, Jonah Till Johnson, who co-hosts the Heavy Strategy podcast with me. Now, Heavy Strategy is where Jonah and I go backwards and forwards on a single topic. Basically, it's an adversarial debate format. You might remember it from high school where you take two different positions, whether you believe in them or not, and then go for it to see if you can come up with some elucidation and insight into the topic. Welcome to the show, Jonah. Thank you, Greg. And I was listening to that and thinking it's actually more like backwards and backwards, but uh, <laughs> there you go. That certainly describes me accurately. I'll, I'll, I'll line up to that. Well, thanks very much to our sponsors today. We are sponsored by Unimus a network automation and configuration management solution that's fast to deploy and easy to use, designed specifically to make it easier for you to adopt network automation quicker and simpler. Unimus takes under 15 minutes to deploy, and you can find out more details about that at unimus.net, U-N-I-M-U-S.net slash packet pushes. And stay tuned for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Kentik about network observability. In particular, we get into the automation of performance testing and synthetic transactions with CEO and co-founder Arvi Friedman. He's been on the network many times. You'll know Arvi is one of us and always worth listening to Arvi talk. All right. And the final one is we have a Glueware live stream. You might remember these are our live events where we actually get together with a vendor and put on 60 minutes of a live stream that's coming up. Um, Glueware is an interesting technology because um, they're increasingly finding tractions with people who have started their journey with Python and Ansible, and a couple of years in, they realize that it's actually painful and not at all awesome. Though writing script and code is actually loads of fun compared to finger-defined networking, and it's all very fashionable for everybody, but it's a massive pain to maintain, hard to troubleshoot, and some of the horror stories I've heard around it, just a thing. Now, Glueware is one of those products that is the next step in your automation journey. So we're going to be holding a live stream with them. It's going to be six 10-minute segments, not a webinar. We're not going to bore you silly. We're going to talk about six 10-minute chunks that you don't get bored. Uh, our live stream event will be available on Zoom and then will be published to our YouTube channel. So if you want to head on over to our website, you'll find details on the Glueware live stream. Please make sure you come along. All right, to the news. Uh, Jonah, this week Cisco announced its intention to acquire yet another company in 2021. They're actually having a banner year for banging companies in through the door of that company. I'm beginning to think they're going to run out of space in their virtual boardrooms. This time it's Espagon. Espagon is an application and observability company specifically built for monitoring containers in serverless environments. The Espagon website says they have automated tracing libraries to collect all application level calls. No code changes, no configurations, no sidecars, no logs, nor manual work is needed you basically just add their code in the function call when you set up your service mesh, and then you get this full visibility into the overlay network. 500 million. But what I really liked about this is that Espagon has only raised 30 million to date and has a total of 60 employees. It's like nothing. Well, that's, uh, Greg, that's actually fairly typical for software companies, but mm -hmm. it's also, you know, as you were talking, I thought of something else, which perhaps is is not politically correct to say, but uh, Cisco going on the acquisition binge is yet another indicator that Cisco firmly believes that uh, innovation happens outside the company yeah. and it's simply using its, its, you know, financial power to acquire innovation, which doesn't say great things about Cisco, but it is what it know. is. 
Well, I think there's a, I like to think of Cisco as a supermarket. They have aisles and in this aisle is the campus our strategy and this aisle is a data center and you've got to put something on the shelves. And so some of those companies are done through partnerships like with F5 Networks, for example, and other ones are in-house brand products that they, you know, buy or get manufactured for them. And then they put them on the shelves to sell them to you. So Cisco is not an innovation company as it runs around bragging about. I just, I agree with that point. But it is a supermarket for various brands rotated around a particular theory. Well, and I like very much your analogy of aisles because they are separated and they are not integrated, which is actually the big thing to watch for if you're looking to, if your user looking to see some benefit from this acquisition. Cisco historically does a terrible job integrating new technology into its existing framework. And in fact, it's kind of funny how it's positioning this as Cisco advances full stack observability strategy with a, a acquisition of Espagon. It's like, no, it doesn't, folks. You have a, you know, you have a cul-de-sac off the supermarket where you have specialty products, but it is in no way integrated with anything else. It's actually like my supermarket has decided it has an entire aisle devoted to organic versions of everything else you can buy in the rest of the store. And that's oh, so a you're making what the, Cisco's doing you're, you're here. You're talking about like the gluten-free section where... <laughs> you know. It's basically, yeah, it's yeah. very weird. It's like, this is if you want cereal, there's cereal in the cereal aisle and organic cereal in the organic aisle. And it's like, yeah. that's a terrible organizational principle. And unfortunately, it's the same one that Cisco kind of follows. So I don't, uh, I would say, be very, very wary of the whole notion of full stack observability because Espagon does what it does. It yeah. doesn't integrate with Cisco to deliver any full stack anything. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing here is that they're not putting Espagon into the same team you might think it would go over to AppDynamics and Thousand Eyes. They're putting it into the innovation team, um, which is like, I don't understand what that means. They're not actually saying this is a product. It's like something that has to be incubated for a while or finished or rewritten or redeveloped. I, 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 I mean, I don't well, understand. Well, and that. I mean, you know, the other way to look at it is potentially a bulk hire because, you know, when you do an acquisition, you're either hire, you know, it's either hiring the people or buying the technology. And they may feel that the approach that the developers have taken is a good one that they want to get built into innovation. But the actual technology is something that they're not as enthusiastic about. That's not what they say, but you never yeah. know. Well, I mean, if it was an observability play, if you're going to say it's an illity, you know, visibility, manageability, observability, whatever it is. Um, I just call them the LEDs most of the time. Um, then it should be over with AppDynamics and Thousand Eyes. That's, that's, I absolutely right? agree with that. And, uh, you know, the, the the thing that's kind of interesting about um, Epsigon is that they can, you know, do things like set up alerts and deliver those alerts in a single pane of glass, deliver them across different channels, which actually makes the most sense integrated with the solutions you just talked about. So, yeah. because I don't want to be looking at a single pane of glass for each product. I want them all integrated in the same pane of glass. So it really does belong there, Greg. I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. And it just seems like, uh, like definitely service mesh to me, it feels like, ah, oh, well, we better do something with service mesh. What are we going to do? They bought um, three other companies in this space that I can't name off the top of my head. So this is like yet another one of the same space. And it feels like Cisco sometimes does this where it goes and buys companies and then they come inside of Cisco and they go like, uh, I think we'll put you over here, you know, and then the company well, and again, fades away. I, we we can't really we can't really discount the possibility that it's literally just a bulk hire, that they're trying to build up their expertise in a particular area and they want the people might mm. you know not so enthusiastic about the technology it's an expensive bulk hire but we're in a tight labor market i don't know 500 million feels rich for an aqua hire 
If it was oh, the- 70, 50, 75 million, 80 million, I'd go with the Equihire. But the Espagon product has this live trace view. So it actually, well, like one of the things about service meshes is tracing where the application flow goes through your, right. uh, you know, through your containers, right? And where does, and knowing what's happening inside. And these people have created the agents that attach to the service mesh. So you don't need to start adding, you know, in the first generation of service meshes, you had to add a sidecar. And that was the idea behind the service mesh. These people are saying, no, 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 just use your existing service mesh. Just bind us into whatever it is that you're using and we'll be able to build up a vision of the network. We don't use log files. We don't use, you know, all the other ways that people do right. it. Right. We're doing know, we're it at use- the application layer. Yes. Yeah. And and actually, I do think that fills a gap in most enterprise portfolios. So you you could be right on the fact that they're really enthusiastic about the technology because that does fill a gap. You know, my concern is always the integration. But I think, you know, if you zoom way out, we're really talking here about the whole notion of the network, broadly speaking, getting increasingly virtualized. And this is yet another indication of that. Yeah. And this is not a networking product per se. This is a visibility product right. called by an API. So a developer would buy this. Exactly. Uh, and it happens at the application layer, but it's sort of Cisco redefining the network, as they say, up the stack, even without that integration. Oh, the only thing Chuck cares about is recurring revenue. Cisco had yeah. some financial results this week. We'll talk about that in some detail down the bottom. But anyway, um, Cisco, a big spend. I think the main thing about this is $500 million, which is one of the largest acquisitions Cisco's made, I think, since it bought AppDynamics for $3.2 billion, um, that we've seen. Typically, Cisco buys small companies that it can bully uh, fairly easily in, or companies that are in distress, like Viptela. You know, they picked up Viptela at a time when it was making a transition and managed to, to get the deal quite cheaply when they bought that. Um, so it'd be interesting to see what this turns into, or if nothing. Uh, moving on to the next topic, Intel this week lifted the lid on its data processing unit or its DPU or its SmartNIC. They held an architecture day via a series of videos that they published on YouTube. Links to the YouTube and the whole uh, experience, if you like, are in the show notes if you want to watch those. Uh, Guido Appenzeller, who you will remember was once the CEO and one of the founders of Big Switch, and then went over to VMware to lead their software-defined networking efforts has now joined Intel as one of the senior executives in their team. And he was up talking about Intel's IPU. Now, the IPU is what Intel's name is for SmartNICs. Um, it's the uh, Intelligent Processing Unit. And they're expounding on the idea that you and I have discussed in a heavy strategy show. Remember when we talked mm-hmm. about SmartNICs and what they would likely be like? Absolutely. This is the computer in a computer idea. That is, your SmartNIC is a full-on computer in its own right plus a high-performance data processing engine. And this is now, I think they announced that they'll start shipping it sort of mid-next year, or as somebody joked to me recently, Q5 2022. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, Uh, That's when I do most of my best work, Q5. Q5. It's interesting in the sense that it is, there's a lot of futures in here. Obviously, it's clear to me that Intel's been caught uh, napping on the networking front. They acquired Barefoot. They're attempting to redevelop that product into a networking team. They've already got a series of SmartNIC acceleration technologies, but they're all based around FPGA. So what they announced as part of this announcement is that they're going to flush out, you're going to flush the poop line, the, you know, flush <laughs> the pipe, <laughs> if you like, clear all of the existing technology out. There's two releases of FPGA-centric SmartNICs coming out, and then the next third generation from today will be an ASIC-based uh, technology, and then they went on to expound on the nature of the technology and the uh, the architecture of the chip. It's uh, going to be CPU class in that's got chiplets and all over it. Did you get time to go over this with the Arrow uh, Creek announcement? 
I, I did. And I just want to highlight one of the big advantages of IPUs, which is from, from our world, this whole notion of the infrastructure offload component, because that to me is probably the most interesting aspect of all of this, where you're basically saying we're taking a standardized approach to handling infrastructure functions and, you know, at your favorite topics, the whole notion of minimizing latency and jitter, which you contend is not actually a problem. Yeah. But uh, I believe it actually is a problem. And I like the this component of the architecture. Mm. It's interesting just how much technology is going into this. Um, yeah. Wh what I haven't had been able to find out is how much legacy technology is going into this. Keep in mind that Intel's current technology stack, its ability to design CPUs and manufacture CPUs is a fair bit behind its competitors. AMD is making inroads. ARM, of course, has got superior pro processing capabilities to Intel. Um, Intel still has an incumbent position. It's doing a pretty good job of respinning and and squeezing a bit more out of its existing technology. But the general consensus is that Intel's reached the end of the line with its current technology and it needs to do something much more strategic. Yeah, this looks to me like they're using yesterday's technology to create something which diverts attention away from the CPU. If I was to be really, really cynical, it's like, dude, we put some CPU in your CPUs, you know? <laughs> well, I think I think the big thing for Intel is that they finally recognize that infrastructure has its own requirements, which is always a good thing. You know, they built in inline security and all of this, which is also helpful. And in some sense, they're chewing away at the, you know, at some components of even the SD-WAN market with having, you know, traffic shaping and prioritization built into it. Um, but Greg, I wanted to ask you, I know it's not directly pertinent to this particular announcement, but it it highlights and fleshes out an observation you just made, which is, you know, Intel under the gun. Hmm. Um, what are your thoughts on the announcement back in March that Intel was partnering with IBM for the, you know, next next generation of chips. Do you think there's anything to that announcement? Is it PR fluff or are we going to see in a couple of years, you know, a real major leap forward from Intel? I I mean, it, the thing about IBM is that it has this massive patent portfolio and right. a really large R&D engine around mm -hmm. chip design and the material science behind it. Right. The the exactly. They are physicists at IBM and not that they're not at, at Intel, but they've got that piece cold. So and that is my concern is that IBM has all this great technology, which is largely, I want to say it's largely built around what they use for their mainframes. They seem to have this whole idea that there's a bunch of technologies that they could use to do various things. And IBM really hasn't been able to leverage that or turn that into something. And, you know, it used to have the fab, but it sold the fab off as Global Foundries, which has then now been used by a range of other things. I think it'll be very interesting to see if anything does come of that. Now, whether it was an actual genuine partnership of some sort or whether it was like, uh, you know, some sort of just a we need to do something for the press and, and we need to come up with something, I don't know, but I want to say that this has got the potential to be something, if you know what I mean. Yeah, that that's kind of my read. And as a, as a New Yorker, one of the things that I liked about it was that they were talking about doing additional technology investment in New York, New York State which of course is, you know, home for IBM. From my perspective, that's actually not an empty promise because New York State has put a lot of effort into capturing some of the next generation of technology development. So, you know, it's not unlikely that this could be moved ahead a little bit by, you know, by the by simply ge geographical fortuitousness, so to speak. So, mm. you know, I like the way you put it. It could be something. We want to keep a close eye on that because it would be very yeah. interesting to see Intel rebound. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, does two two no's make a right? Does two losers make a winner? Intel's on the outs. 
it's got to turn itself around and go somewhere, but so does IBM. IBM's spent, you know what, under uh, under its previous CEO, spent five years financial engineering its way to profitability and cash flow, but eventually emptied the bank. It had nothing behind it. It went, spent so much money saving money to deliver to the bottom line that it actually ran out of technology chops and products to sell and exhausted the organization's resources. And, and it's got just dead. Do you know what I mean? Like IBM has this massive entrenched marketplace, but you can't say that IBM's a growth company at this point. You, you absolutely can't. Uh, I do think though, and, and I will cheerfully confess my personal uh, predilection for fallen angels. Um, I think IBM is sitting on, as you mentioned earlier, a massive mother load of technology innovation. And it's literally, it will, it could, if leveraged properly, probably keep IBM, you know, feed IBM for the next 25 years, just simply sending somebody conceptually speaking, down into the library, dusting off the shelves and, you know, pulling off a patent that turns out to have great applicability. So yeah. if they're smart, I think there's a potential for doing something. Anyway, it's a sideshow. I just, side I just show, thought yeah. it was kind of interesting that, you know, Intel is placing a lot of different bets in you know, trying to move that forward. Magic will happen. If, if Intel yeah. can, you know, they are struggling with their right. technology, their manufacturing technology. If they could work with IBM's uh, researchers and so forth to find a way to break through, then exactly. there's something there. That doesn't feel like a certainty. That feels like a Hail Mary a pass. Hope. You know, it, yeah. Well, it feels like a hope more than a possible, more than a mm. probability, but you never know because, mm-hmm. and you know, they, they both have a, yeah, and they both have a lot of great people <laughs> yeah. at the organization. So for sure. Uh, I do want to call out a couple of things about uh, Intel tried to make three major advantages or claim three major advantages about their IPUs. One was they're highlighting the separation of infrastructure and tenant. So they perceive that the smart neck will absolutely be a place where the hypervisor will run. And then whatever's running in the CPU memory complex will be isolated from the hypervisor by hardware. And this will substantially increase the security of the solution way beyond where we currently are. So that is where hypervisors today can and often do get privileged access to the hypervisor underneath, you know, the tenants. They're going to separate that much further. The second thing they wanted to emphasize, of course, was the traditional smart and Excel of um, acceleration. So you can offload a number of the data processing functions, the IO. But the third one was a bit of an odd emphasis, I thought. They wanted to say that this smart NIC will be able to um, deliver diskless server architectures to the hypervisors without any change to the hypervisors. Well, that and that's an interesting one, too, because you mentioned it's an odd duck. Mm. And, you know, why do you think they're pushing on this use case? It's so specific. Like mm-hmm. normally when you're making these grand strategy announcements, right. you paint with a four-inch paintbrush, right? Right. <laughs> and this is and, and this is like, you know, an ultra-fine Sharpie or something. This is right. And, and when you see something that is quite narrow and quite niche, there's usually something in there. And I think what, of course, they're driving at here is that the, the smart neck or the IPU or the DPU can present a virtual NVMe to the operating system above it. And the actual disks will be somewhere out the back in the cloud infrastructure, in a shared infrastructure, and you'll be able to boot from them as though they're an NVMe. Now, that is a substantial change. This means that your server farm no longer needs any sort of um, storage to be able to boot from, because up until now, you still had to have an SSD in there or some sort of spinning (laughs) rust to be able to boot the hypervisor, and then after that, you didn't use it anymore. Well, if you could de-storage all of your servers and just boot from some shared infrastructure in the back, that is a significant saving. Especially well, well, for Mike, the big cloud yeah. 
And my, my brain went in a totally different direction, which is diskless client, which you this also enables because there's no functional difference between a server and client. It's just more expensive. You know, it'd be a very expensive client. But I do think it's quite interesting, the idea that you can now segment off storage and put it elsewhere. And by the way, elsewhere doesn't have to be that particularly close because the infrastructure offload component where you're actually optimizing traffic for whatever network connectivity you have. There, so I do think that's interesting, uh, and mm. I do think that points in a direction of uh, architectural shift across the board that Intel may be betting is going to happen. That's right, I, I, I think so. The, and the architecture. So they in the tutor video they post about the architecture, and it's like you know the the Mount Evans, which is a year away or yeah. more. You know, Q right. five twenty twenty two has a, a whole processor complex on it and a whole bunch of memory, like high speed. This is a full exactly. server architecture on the NIC, right? On the NIC, yes, yeah. yeah. But I imagine, you know, LPDDR4 memory, look-ahead crypto engines based around their existing technology that they've put into the engines. They've got a management complex. I talked before that on a motherboard, you normally have a baseboard controller. That is actually when the motherboard boots. It gets its BIOS and everything from this. But those baseboard controllers have proven massively insecure. So these smart NICs are hoping to take over this control of all this market and money. Exactly. With the built-in crypto and also, you know, let's not forget that they also have built-in built-in performance management with QoS and things like that, which, of course, is really important because you want those that those two functions to happen at the same level anywhere. Yeah, uh, you do. And, you know, so it's sort of uh, one of the things that I tried to allude to as we talked about SmartNex over the last year is just how they're not going to change anything. Everything stays the same, like servers still need storage and you know, they still need to talk to a network and the operating system and the hypervisors, are, they're all the same. But the actual underlying change is profound. There is a CPU for which runs VMs, but there's another completely different CPU now running the hypervisor. There is an accelerated networking engine that is accelerated by default that you can run firewalls and IDSs and IPSs on well, eventually. The, the analogy yeah. that I like to use, Greg, is if you look at um, biological systems, an enormous amount of processing in mammals and reptiles actually happens in the eyeballs. And it's sort of that idea of kind of saying, okay, the brain should just sit there and think, but eyeballs need to really focus and perceive. So when you're actually seeing things, a lot of that pre-processing is happening in your eyes ahead of the time, you know, before it even hits your brain. And right. in a way, that separation of functions is a way to get much more powerful performance across the board. Yeah. So it just, it is one of these things that changes nothing, but is a profound change under the hood. Does that make sense? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly why I use that particular example, because, yeah. you know, the reasons these things evolved were precisely to enable to enable creatures to do things they couldn't do before because of this architectural separation. Hmm. Which I find fascinating, right? In the way that, this, you know, everybody's going to roam around mouthing off words like innovation, transformation, exciting technology change, and actually it changes nothing, right? Right. But uh, they're all excited about it because it's an opportunity to sell more CPUs for your CPUs and squeeze into a gap there and extract more money from customers, I think. Especially if you're, uh, you know, these these... Uh, companies like Intel are increasingly beholden to the mega, you know, to the cloud providers these days and Facebook and Google and AWS and the second tier of providers underneath those. And that's where the market is going. They haven't got a story for enterprises at the moment. 
And so they've got to focus. I was, yeah, I was you know. I was just thinking about that, that, you know, it's sort of this is all great. But from the perspective of my clients, it's a it's a giant big whoop because, you know, they're the enterprise customers. But I do think the architectural highlights mm. that we touched on may downstream have an impact that won't necessarily be associated with this particular announcement, but will be a direct result of it. Potentially. Yeah, there'll be a trickle down here, I suspect, over yeah. time. Or it's easy to imagine, perhaps, that in three to five years, there'll be a, you know, instead of a Mount Evans, there'll be a Hill Evans. <laughs> well, I'm I'm still back on those uh, storageless, you know, uh, diskless servers, which I think is actually quite interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, very, you know, or maybe it'll be a gentle slope, Evans, instead of a mount or something like that. But anyway, uh, also in the news this week, Cloudflare reported on the largest DDoS attack that it thinks anybody has ever seen. Now, it's interesting in the sense that we don't hear a lot about DDoS this, these days, which means it's mostly a solved problem. That is, most people who are have DDoS problems is handling it with the range of what used to be CDN companies who then adapted themselves to be edge computing companies. And part of what most of the CDN slash edge computing does is they run serverless apps, they do caching and content protection, and they also do um, DDoS protection so they can flood it. And one of the things that's particularly uh, notable about the Cloudflare announcement is that they actually talk about it in a way that I like. Let me read it to you. Earlier this summer, Cloudflare's autonomous edge DDoS protection systems automatically detected and mitigated a 17.2 million request per second DDoS attack, an attack almost three times larger than any previous one we're aware of. So the key piece here is 17.2 million requests per second. And that to me is the key value here. It's not like, you know, 22 gigabytes of day, you know, uh, of, of bandwidth was being consumed. They're talking about requests per second, which is the key metric in DDoS. And Greg, I have to agree with you 100% on that. I like the fact that you singled out their metric and I agree that that is the key metric because nobody really cares how many bits are flowing across the wire. That said, I'm a little more skeptical than you are, not about DDoS generally, but about, you know, Cloudflare making a big deal about, you know, oh, we've got the largest DDoS attack to date, you know, big whoop. Um, <laughs> until until the next one, and every every provider has you know protected against the largest DDoS attack to date until the next one comes along. I would I would agree that it's largely a solved problem, but I'm going to push back on the notion that uh, you know that it, this is somehow unique or special, other than the metric, which I will give you, yeah. because you know uh, there's been a whole debate as to whether you should be solving DDoS on prem or in the network, and uh, I think you pointed out earlier that. It, it really, this is not something that should be happening on-prem. This is something that should be happening in the network. And I'll go a step further and say, this is not something that should be happening at the content level. This is something that should be happening at the network level and in the core level. And uh, in fact, the carriers have been doing this very, very successfully for many, many years. So, uh, I'm you know, sure my... I'm not sure. Oh, I, I am absolutely 100 percent sure because I am very close to the folks that developed the streaming databases that AT&T implemented in the 90s and 2000s, hmm. which were so far ahead of the time that literally people didn't believe they could do what they could do. And they are very effective at stopping DDoS in the core. So it's great that a content provider is coming along and saying, hey, guys, yeah. we're measuring it correctly and we're doing a good job. Welcome to the party. <laughs> Well, we did a podcast, uh, I think it was published oh, a couple of weeks ago with NetScout. It was a TechBite format, so it was published on the network break. And if you remember there, uh, it's not widely understood that the problem in DDoS for most uh, enterprises is what's called state exhaustion. They surveyed their customer base and, and a range of people out there 
and found out that a lot of people didn't know what state exhaustion was. And basically what's happening here is that if you make a large number of HTTP requests, each one of those consumes resources on your firewall, on your threat detection and threat response engines, on your caches inside of your web server, the varnish caches or whatever. And then also the web servers themselves have to handle those. And each one of those requests can, can exhaust the state inside of those devices. And that's where the DDoS comes from. But the, the point is they should never be reaching the firewall. They, those requests should never even come close to mm-hmm. the firewall. They should have been stopped long before it. And the way to do that is doing that in the core of the network. Yeah, I absolutely correct. And that's the point. The point is, is that there are two different types of DDoS attack that you need to defend against. One is a bandwidth attack where people are just attacking you to saturate your bandwidth. And yeah. the second one, and much more damaging, and the one that you can't defend against yourself is the one which is an application level attack where they're just flooding you with application requests and you have to have a way to filter it out. So, Which, uh, and there's a and there's a broader picture that to that since you brought up that whole topic. Uh, I used to do testing and kind of ran the lab test for Data Communications Magazine for a number of years. And one of the very, very standard tests we always did was that whole notion of requests per second or sessions per second or whatever you want to, whatever the entity is, you assent where it's going to break is exactly that state table failure exhaustion in the in the device that's terminating all the requests or sessions or whatever. And this is a this is a model that enterprise users should be applying to absolutely everything they're looking at, not, hey, how many packets per second does it handle or whatever it is, but how what is the maximum number of sessions or requests or whatever virtual connections are happening. And this is, by the way, one of the reasons that I'm not a huge fan of the SASE architecture or, you know, certain forms of remote access, but that's a whole different discussion. I think the key point is- we should probably have on heavy strategy in the near future. Absolutely. But that being said, I think think the key thing, again, is that request per session metric is, a second metric is a great one. Well, let's pause for a moment and say thanks to Unimus, who is our sponsor for today. Unimus is a network automation and configuration management software designed for ease of use and fast deployment on your network. You shouldn't have to become a developer just to automate your network config. That's why the makers of Unimus designed the platform to remove the barriers of entry to your automation process. There's no programming languages, no abstraction framework, and no templating languages. With Unimus, you can just use the configuration skills you already have network-wide without spending weeks learning complex frameworks. The focus is on rapid automation. Unimus also handles network configuration management from config backup through change management, config change notifications to auditing. Unimus is a full-featured config management system in addition to the automation features. The platform runs on-premises, is multi-tenant ready, and supports more than 180 network device types across 100 plus vendors. You can get a free, no obligation, unlimited license trial or schedule a short technical demo. And you can find out a lot more about this product at unimus.net slash packet pushes. That is unimus, U-N-I-M-U-S dot net slash packet pushes. And we thank them for their support. Uh, so we're going to wrap up today's show with just a quick chat around Cisco's financial results. As you know, on uh, Network Break, we always look at Cisco's financial results and tea leave into them to see if we can find anything out about how the behemoth of networking is doing. And also to try and extract whether there's any indications about where the networking industry is going. And when, as we always say, if you follow the money, you probably end up somewhere close to the truth. So Cisco's quarterly results are out. 
they're, you know, reminding me as always, <laughs> as I peer into the inscrutable verbiage and attempt to decode the future from what they try to tell shareholders, I'm reminded that shareholders are after all the purpose of Cisco's business. Customers are really the means to just create shareholder value. Is that, is that too cynical? That is not too cynical, but I would like to push you ahead and sort of ask that you walk through some of the different growth areas because I have a question for you to address for uh, listeners who may be a little confused by what Cisco's okay. announcing. So Cisco has announced overall revenue growth of 8% year over year. That's a substantial increase after several years of shrinking revenues. They've now posted an increase in revenue. What I noted from the reports is that enterprise orders increased 25%. So fundamentally, what they're alluding to in the call and into the notes that they've issued to analysts is that enterprises have come back from the COVID break and they've ordered a lot of gear. And then they're now also double ordering because of supply chain constraints. And that is creating a bubble in the ordering process. It's not a one-off. They've got three quarters of growth in most areas of the business. One thing I noted was that Cisco security continues to lag behind the industry, as we've seen consistently posting growth of only 1% in a market where, I don't, I don't know, I guess 20, 20 to 30% growth is normal for most security companies. Would that be right? I, I would I would agree with that. And that's the question I wanted to ask because Chuck Robbins is saying uh, that they saw double digit revenue growth in zero trust solutions, which would presumably be part of the security. So how do you square that circle that they're claiming double digit growth for zero trust, but they're only posting 1% growth for security? Their firewalls aren't doing very well at all. And, and Fair enough. The, yep. the, the Cisco security po firewall portfolio is very unpopular. A lot of people are taking it out and throwing it away, as far as I know. And Cisco's Duo Security, however, which is the zero trust tool, is very popular and is actually an excellent tool, but it doesn't sell to the traditional networking base. I think Cisco doesn't do well against Palo or Fortinet or even Checkpoint. Uh, and the products have a legend, you know, a fairly poor reputation for instability and insecurity, actually. We continue to have a string of vulnerabilities announced against its various firewall platforms, even up until this month. And Greg, that's exactly why I wanted to push you to make that point, because I think it's incredibly important for enterprises to, to hear. I want to also raise the fact that in our research, one of the things we look at is what vendors, products and technologies correlate with good cybersecurity metrics. And one of the things we found is that generally in cybersecurity, having a strategic vendor does not correlate with improving your metrics. So basically having a strategic cybersecurity vendor isn't going to buy you anything in terms of improving your, your security stance. Mm. Furthermore, uh, if people do have a strategic cybersecurity vendor, some vendors are inversely correlated with success. And one of those vendors is, in fact, Cisco. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's exactly, you know, that's another way to look at what you just said here, which is why I wanted to raise that point. You know, it may be that Cisco's zero trust stuff is doing quite well by users. Uh, I'm not ready to make that point yet. I'll happily let everybody know <laughs> after our next round of research, but I can guarantee you that relying on Cisco as your strategic cybersecurity vendor is a losing move. Yeah, I believe so. That doesn't mean that all of their portfolio is, no. you know, is not competitive, but the majority of it is, and customers are voting with their feet. Um, and Cisco security, you know, that is going to be a long-term pain point for them because they could have had substantial growth if their security portfolio had a fired, you know, what had it been exactly. growing it with the industry. 
So, And Greg, another point that you're about to make, and I'll jump ahead, but I will credit it to you, is that even with all the headcount reductions and everything else, Cisco's OPEX is increasing. And I want to tie that back to something we said earlier in the show, which is, you know, part of the problem is the complexity of integrating together all their different acquisitions and all the different technologies. Hmm. And that has always acted as major technical debt since its days as a, as a router company, Cisco has carried a disproportionate amount of technical debt. And you can see it in the OPEX costs. I think it actually, it's organizational debt in Cisco's case as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> Internally, like most big companies, and you know, this is not just Cisco, this is, you know, any of its competitors, they all struggle to integrate acquisitions. And you'd think with all the practice that Cisco has and how much uh, how many acquisitions and how much money it's spending on acquisitions it'd be more effective. But generally there's in t- substantial internal organizational debt. Like for example, they shut down most of the tax centers outside of the Philippines and India and Pakistan this year and moved nearly all of the headcount to those locations. That's a significant transition. There's retraining, expertise and so forth. But Cisco's OPEX, you know, doesn't seem to reflect the cash savings that they would have made by um, you know, shedding staff in high cost countries and moving uh, services to low cost locations. Um, but they did on the bright side, as, as Chuck Robbins wanted to call out, because he always wanted to call out the good news, of course, because that's his job. In our web scale business, we saw increased momentum delivering a record performance with over 160% order growth. Now, the observation I saw from Jeffries was that Cisco actually has a very small base in the web scale business. So 160% sounds like a lot until you realize that Cisco is largely a bit player. But notwithstanding, they are actually getting traction with some of the big companies who are turning to Cisco for some networking equipment. We don't know what, but we know that it is. Um, and then he also, Chuck also called out that double-digit revenue growth in campus switching, Catalyst 9000, high-end routing, wireless, and our zero-trust solutions um, was something that he called out. Um, so there is that. Basically, the enterprise is back and picking up on its campus projects, which I find a little baffling. Um, because, you know, you and I, I think, largely violently agree that SDP is the long-term solution. But maybe people need to do something with the campus now to rebuild their offices. Would that be logical? Is that what you're seeing? Well, it makes me, Greg, yes, short answer. It also makes me think about the fact, the uh, pithy comment that science, science advances one funeral at a time. And I would argue that enterprise technology advances one retirement at a time. I think there are a lot of folks who have had uh, a lot of trouble prying their heads loose from the old, you know, on-premise physical network mo- paradigm and really accepting what it means to have network virtualization and SDP happening. And so they're simply just going back to what they understand. So they're saying, oh, we've got to beef up our campus networks. We've got to beef up what we've got on premise. You know, you're seeing people uh, uptick in NAC, which makes absolutely no sense, largely because people are just wedded to this idea of the network is the physical devices and the, the and it is on prem. Mm-hmm. And there's no real way to get people to stop thinking about that. Those people just sort of have to exit the marketplace and people with, you know, different mindsets are going to rise to positions of, of greater power and authority inside enterprises. For sure. Uh, Chuck Robbins also alluded to the supply challenges coming ahead and the cost impacts. He's basically saying that the cost of increased cost of the supply chain is already flowing through to their bottom line, but it hasn't flowed through to customers yet. They've increased prices yet again uh, for quotes that will start taking effect from August. So if you haven't got your orders in and quotes in now, 
Uh, certain products will expect to see substantial price hikes as the supply chain costs get taken in. And he also called out specifically 400 gig, which was really interesting. He said, we also see 400 gig taking off in a really, in a meaningful way. I'll give you a couple of stats because that someone's probably going to ask for it. He's talking about the analysts on the call, of course. In Q4, 400 gig ports, our orders were up 668%. And for the year, 400 gig port orders were up 831%. We have over 400 customers that have deployed and we've taken orders for almost 180,000 ports total. A couple of things there. One is 400 gig is alive and well in a certain piece of the customer base and 400 customers is a lot deploying 400 gig interfaces. So service providers, cloud providers and more. But you're also seeing that Cisco made a substantial spend to buy the company that makes 400 gig optics and modules. And this would be a relief to him to see that the demand is picking up because he made a big bet in money terms. And he's indirectly telling the analysts, got it right. To wrap that up into what the market said, generally the general analyst and market response was, eh, Cisco was down a few points, then up a few points. Generally, it seems is steadily plodding along a very predictable path, which to be fair, is pretty much what its customers want. Most enterprises don't want the excitement of working with its startups. So that's about it for today's show, Jonah. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. Is there anywhere where people can find you on the internet? Absolutely. Best way to find me is to look me up on LinkedIn. I spend a fair amount of time there and it allows me to interact with you. So send me a message, uh, friend me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to talk to you. All right. And I'll be saying, I've got to have a box of virtual donuts on its way to you this week. I'm sure you'll enjoy those. Virtually. <laughs> Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Kentic on automating network observability. That's starting right now. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're talking about network observability. In particular, we're going to get into the automation of performance testing and synthetic transactions. Our sponsor is Kentic, and our guest is Avi Friedman. He is CEO and co-founder of Kentic. Avi, welcome back to Pack of Pushers. And can you start us off with the elevator pitch on Kentic in case folks aren't familiar? Thanks. Uh, Kentic is the network observability company. We see all the kinds of networks that you have, the ones you own that run routers and switches and data centers and WAN and, and, uh, and the edge, uh, the ones you don't like cloud and SaaS, and even over to the host eBPF, put it all in one place, give people insights and, and help them run better networks. All right. So I mentioned performance testing in the intro, which tells me we're not just talking about passive monitoring or passive observability. Uh, there's a place for that, of course, but the, with performance testing, you can measure performance as needed. And, and is this where synthetic transactions come into the picture? Yeah, absolutely. So network devices, network stacks generally don't give you much performance information. You get volume, uh, you get uh, you get traffic, destinations and sources and things. Uh, some of the lower end, smaller switches can give you and routers can give you some performance info, but at the gigabit, terabit scale and across consistently, the network layer doesn't really have performance. So you need to do tests, you need to do synthetic transactions to be able to see that well. And I presume synthetic contractions let me see, you know, more than one network or all of the pieces of the network that I'm trying to measure. Yeah, not just all the different kinds of networks, but up into the application stack uh, really is as far up as people want to go. Up until now, you've tended to rely on, Kentic has been relying more heavily on streaming telemetry, that idea of ingesting data from the network, however it comes, you know, flow records primarily. And now you're sort of moving to embrace this synthetic testing, which is where you put agents around the network and then you probe the network. Is that about providing more data points for the data set or is it actually something different? Is it giving you a different product, an extra product in the portfolio? 
technically it's an extra product, but as data nerds, we think about more data, you know, more food, you know, feed me, Seymour. Uh, the, the better, the more food you have, the better observations you can make. And again, we get just Google VPC flow logs have performance, NetFlow Lite and Cisco AVC have performance, but SFlow, NetFlow, you know, host eVPF, we can get performance. But the other thing that network performance doesn't let you see from the network is what if, right? Let's say I'm having a problem to provider X in Boston, uh, what other paths might be good. That's where synthetics, you know, performance testing can be really helpful. I can go fire off a bunch of tests on my alternate paths on SD-WAN, you know, mm -hmm. to alternate cloud connections and see. And so it's a different product. It's it's called, you know, digital experience monitoring. It's synthetic transaction testing. But to us, it's more telemetry from the network and, right. and the ability to make better insights and, and run better networks. Because I could imagine that if I was collecting flow data, I could see really interesting stuff about the infrastructure, but the synthetic testing is much more about this probe shows me this. And so now I'm actually getting like a user experience as opposed to I'm looking right. down on the network instead of up from the bottom, which is where your, your main product comes from. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we actually will test APIs, application, DNS, uh, up the stack, which helps you discriminate. Is there an issue? Where's the issue? Where the automation comes in is, if I'm doing those synthetic tests, but there's no traffic nearby, do I care? What's the round? What's the sound of one packet dropping, right? <laughs> um, um, or, you know, really, why not set up those tests based on what your traffic is? To me, it's always seemed like they shouldn't be two or three different products, but it should all be integrated. So what do you mean by a synthetic transaction? Are you mimicking some kind of actual network mm -hmm. transaction? Are you recording something and replaying it? How does it, how does it work? Yeah, so synthetic generally means it isn't an actual user doing something. And so it could be ping and trace route, it could be a DNS query, it could be a script, it could be downloading a web page. And then we have some agents. Um, we have a, a Rust one that can run on a, on a creepy little SFP that has a 400 megahertz arm in it, and, and you could stick in a thing as a server could run it'll just run on you know um arista straight as is and run a container on cisco and juniper run on you know run on linux um container vm whatever so and then we have uh, hundreds of those agents soon thousands deployed around the world so we can do the outside in so we can test back into your network test your applications and network endpoints too Okay, so what am I going to learn from a synthetic test or a synthetic transaction that I wouldn't get from you know flow records so you're actually going to see performance, latency, loss, jitter, throughput, which you generally don't get at a fine grained from uh, from flow. Um, you're going to get really all the way up to all the elements of a page, what was downloaded, all the start times and stop times. Again, flow is typically super aggregated and you know can't really show you effectively what's happening if there's if the uh, an actual browser would be confused because with synthetics you can go synthetic transactions you can go all the way up and actually have um, a headless browser uh, be pulling objects and then pull that back into the same platform that you're using to run and see your network yeah okay and that's in, that's interesting because you can actually do testing of the application like i can load mm -hmm. an image a test image off my web server and I can measure web server performance, but I can now run a script which queries the database through the web server and then measure the application stack and then decide if it's a networking problem or a server problem, right? Yeah. And all the while, while you're doing the application testing, be running traces in the background, which are another kind of synthetic transaction. So you can correlate and say, okay, well, does it look like 
everything to this pop or that country or whatever was fine on the network. Is it a problem with this application endpoint, uh, you know, or whatever, and really help with the meantime to innocence and really help, you know, make the revenue flow for the company again. Mm. Do you see this as primarily a troubleshooting tool, i.e. I get a report from an end user or a customer who says the network is slow and they experience something that I'm not going to be able to recreate, so I run a test? Or do you see synthetic tests being used sort of repeatedly just for your own peace of mind about how everything's operating? We see it starting with um, proactive insights, which is where really linking it to the flow and traffic telemetry. So you say, let me run tests to the places where my network is actually active uh, we see that as the primary mission. And then obviously we have all the data and you can run ad, ad hoc tests for going down to whatever level of detail and interactively debugging. Because as you know, sometimes routing is 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 complicated and and then things get confused and it needs humans to uh, go and discriminate. Yeah, but you need a purpose. The challenge with fixing routing <laughs> or fiddling with costs is having the data to give you purpose. You know, a lot of, right. so many people just butts with settings on thinking, I think right. this is the problem and I'll twiddle with this knob. Oh, no, too loud. <laughs> you know. Well, it's exactly what I said. What's the sound of one packet dropping? The yeah. traditional synthetic solutions would fire off alerts, do fire off alerts, and there's no traffic anywhere nearby. Yeah. So it's like, well, does it matter? Like, is someone affected? So with Kentic, we take the traffic. We also take application, IPAM, radius, you know, trying to figure out what users what customers does this matter? So when you get an alert about a performance problem, maybe you won't even get it if there's not a top 10, you know, identified application group, whatever. And then if there is, you can you can see what the impact is. Um, and by the way, one of the things we all know from networking, sometimes the problem is gone or it doesn't matter by the time you're finished, you, before you're finished debugging. So again, go you can go back and it'll say, uh, not a problem anymore. Don't worry about it. Because, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, why, why do you want to be going and optimizing for transients? So it sounds like you're getting a ton of information. Are you doing anything to aggregate, normalize, uh, help uh, refine uh, th this information I'm getting so I'm not just drinking from the fire hose? Yeah, so two things, really. One, we enrich all the data, so we normalize and enrich it so that we don't just have a ping or an application test or whatever, but um, we understand what customer, what endpoint, what, what application, even if it's all the way into Kubernetes and the, and the magic la-la land of, of, of modern, <laughs> modern applicationing. Um, and then the second thing is, of course, trying to you know, only show you, hey, there's this pattern of patterns, there's this thing, and here's where we think the problem might be. Here's the cloud underlying infrastructure, the app data, here's everything that we know about it. Um, and again, it's in the Kentic view, every performance test shows you the actual traffic related to it so that you can quickly say, oh, this looks like it could be important or, you know, um, anti, you know, to, to discriminate it out and not look at it. So I mentioned automation uh, at the, in my uh, intro as well. Where does automation come into play with all of this testing? Uh, why do I want to automate them and, and how does Kentic make it happen? Well, the easy button, which you don't have to use, basically says, pick my top destinations, pick my top CDNs, uh, networks, uh, applications, and test them. So you don't have to constantly be, oh, what's that IP address for that? And let me go set up a test and whatever. And uh, the second part of automation is, well, 
stop running the test when you've deinstalled the thing. And it's not, <laughs> because it's, oh, it's down. No, it's just not there anymore. And then the third is around that alerting, which is really that showing you the things that are important. So we really, it's the correlation side of it. Um, uh, you know, only show you things where there's actually traffic nearby. But that's, so that's something that Kentec's been doing for years now. Kentec's been doing the, the telemetry and the visibility mm-hmm. or the observability, however you want to, you know, whatever language you want to use around that. Yeah. And all of that generates alerts. The world doesn't seem to have enough alerts. That's why we don't talk about <laughs> alert. We talk about alerts, right? <laughs> right. Well, we want to have fewer of them that are better. Yeah. And what happens with with performance testing with synthetics is that we have performance basically on 100% of the network right. instead of just the network elements that could give us uh, performance from passively monitoring things. And again, we just don't see packets, like packet monitoring being the way that people like... Salesforce is not going to give you their packets, right? This fast apps are not going to give you their packets. Uh, AWS will give you your packets, but not their packets. And it's just a very heavyweight way to do things. So um, uh, you actually adding synthetic tests lets you get 100% performance visibility and do actually fewer alerts. That's actually sort of the whole point. And I think you raised a good point about this automation capability and that I hadn't thought about all of the steps required to actually run a synthetic test. I've got a deploy my agents uh, when I'm ready to run a test, figure out agent to agent, what, where do I want to go to? What mm-hmm. test do I want to use, et cetera. So you're making that whole setup aspect easier. Yeah. I mean, from the very basic level, the easy button, which is test on my top apps and destinations to the somewhat more subtle for people, let's say you're dependent on Akamai. Mm. Well, Akamai has 300,000 servers. What are you actually testing? to? <laughs> right. So instead, why don't I just test to the servers that are actually pulling from your origin, right? We know that from the flow. So that's another kind of automation. It's a little bit more subtle. The basic high level, you know, easy button is uh, all my top destinations that I say are important applications. Just go fire off tests to them and, you know, be proactive, of course. Hmm. Are you finding there are particular networks or services? And I'm thinking you mentioned CDNs and Akamai mm-hmm. that are good candidates for synthetic testing. Yeah, I mean, we see starting um, network pops, you know, if, if you're running infrastructure, network pops, DNS. CDNs and SaaS, mm-hmm. those are the four big categories of things that we want to see people test. And you could say your own app too, right? So however, but even that is typically you're delivering it as a service. So start at the infrastructure level, DNS, you know, of course is uh, is in the middle, um, one AS to rule them all and in the DNS bind them uh, kind of thing. <laughs> and, <laughs> then, uh, and then uh, your apps and then CDNs, you know, for, for getting out to the end user. So those are the things, but you really test anything. It's just a question. You test VoIP, you can test, you know, whatever. But um, th- that that's the, the, the hierarchy of need of uh, making the revenue flow that we see. And of course, we have many CDN customers. We have many SaaS customers. We have many enterprise customers. We have many service providers. So everyone is in this world. In fact, the number one service provider need is testing Office 365 because guess what? They're selling SD-WAN. And what do people do with SD-WAN? They're you know, on Google and Office 365 and Zoom all day. Yeah, and the challenge with WAN and to a large extent, even campus is all of those are networks that start somewhere and finish somewhere and then go onto another <laughs> network. So you might go off the Wi-Fi, onto a campus yeah. LAN, into a data center, into the internet, cross the internet to some public cloud somewhere, off-premise cloud. How do you, what's the meaning of monitoring that network when a lot of that infrastructure you don't own? It starts to become a real 
yeah. problem. We yeah. call it the OPN problem, other people's networks, right? It's it's the networks you own and the ones you don't, but the ones you don't affect you too, which is, you know, it's ultimately comes down to the internet unless you're doing peering and putting it all together in one place. And that's what we do on the flow side, whether it's VPC flow logs or host eBPF or host PCAP or NetFlow or SFlow. Uh, it's put it all together, make it look the same, put it on a map. And then, but at the same time, you need to understand the performance of all of it. And guess what? Again, uh, you know, Salesforce is not going to give you their flow. Uh, and mm. Amazon's not going to give you uh, the flow that's underlying it. So you better be doing mm. performance testing where you don't have that kind of telemetry or you're, you know, completely blind. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, that does bring us to the end of this episode. If uh, we've whet your appetite for more information, Avi, where should folks go? You go to kentik.com, K-E-N-T-I-K.com. I'm Avi at kentik.com and happy to talk to anyone who's, who's interested. And I'm Avi Friedman on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn as well. All right. Well, thank you, Avi, for joining us. And thanks to Kentik for being a sponsor. If you like the show, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog. It's all at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at packetpushers. Find us on LinkedIn and rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.